Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Okay, I want all the little kids to come up, and I don't know what to say about you guys. I mean, at some point, you have to stop coming up. Whether this is the particular morning you should stop, I don't know. Why don't you just come one last time? Is that okay? One last time, and then we'll call you adults. <laughs> okay. So let me ask you, what is a sibling? Not a siblint. You know what a siblint is, right? But what is a sibling? Yes. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a gender-neutral term for brothers and sisters. So sibling is a brother or a sister, okay? Now, what is rivalry? Yes. Huh? No, that's sort of what it is, but that's not what it is. What is rivalry? Yes. Yeah, so it's fighting, but it's fighting to try to, in other words, it's competitive. It's a combination of fighting and competition. You don't just want to kill them, you want to get above them. Does that make sense? So what is sibling rivalry? Yeah. Well, no, not really. Yeah. Yes. So it's competing with your sibling. Now, I have some grandchildren. Did you know that? Okay. And I want all of you to know, my grandchildren never do sibling rivalry. Especially Zion. What are you laughing about? Especially Zion and Daniel. They're, they're crumbs and they've learned never to fight with their brothers. Now, we all know what sibling rivalry is. Are any of you ever fighting with your brothers or sisters to see which of you is the greatest? You're not. Did did somebody say no? Oh, that's because you're a one-off, dude. You're a little blonde. I mean, if Nana were here, she'd be laughing. That's, that's my Elias, and he says he doesn't compete with anybody, and that's probably true, actually, if you think about it, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's funny, Elias. Okay. Now, here's, here's the second thing. Do any of you know what big city in the United States is called the city of brotherly love? Do you know? Go ahead, say it, sweetie. Huh? Right on! Nobody in the first service knew it. That's most excellent. What city is called the city of brotherly love? Now, if I were to tell you how to say brotherly love in Greek, you don't know Greek, do you? How do you think you say brotherly love in Greek? Come on, say it out loud. Yeah, you just said something. I'll bet you do know. Does anybody know? The way you say brotherly love in Greek 
is Philadelphia. Isn't that interesting? So Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love because that's what it means in Greek, Philadelphia. And it's in the Bible passage we have this morning. Now, what is the opposite of brotherly love? <laughs> that, was, that was stupid. Whoever said that was stupid. They said sisterly love. <laughs> what is the opposite of brotherly love? Come on, what? No, no. What? What? You're almost there. Yes! The opposite of brotherly love is sibling rivalry. All right, now say it with me. Sibling rivalry and... Okay, now, I just want to tell you this morning, you know what the Bible's going to say to your parents? It's going to tell them that they should not fight with their brothers and sisters in Christ. You probably don't think of your parents as fighting at church, do you? But they do. And you know who they fight with? They fight with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul says this morning, nope, 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 you are to love your brothers. But if that's true for your parents at church, where else is it true? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Scott, you've got work. Yes. Huh? In you, which is what? In the home. And so listen, would you guys please work hard not to fight with your brothers and sisters? You know why? It makes your parents so sad. Don't do it. I'll tell you a little story and then we'll be done. I have a lot of grandchildren. You know who the two oldest grandchildren I have are? Nope, not Zion. Nope. Jonathan and Nathan. Yes. And do you know that when they were little kids, they played and played and played and played and played and played and, played and never, ever, ever argued or fought. I used to watch them for hours, and it was true. But then something happened. And it was just so sad. And I began to feel a little bit of tension between them. And I was so sad. And do you know that they both went off to college this year? Do you know that? To Hillsdale? And you know when they went off to college, do you know what? Nathan and Carver told Jonathan that he could not room with them. so sad. I felt so sad for Jonathan. <laughs> okay, let's pray. <laughs> Dear Jesus, help us not to fight with our brothers and sisters so that our parents can be happy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you can go back. It wasn't nearly as melodramatic as I'm making it out, right? But it did kind of just kind of, you know. The point of the story is that you used to always just get along and be happy with each other. And then I found out that Nathan told you you were not welcome. 
That would never have happened for the first 10 years of your life. I mean, you were inseparable. I once was in an anthropology class that was family systems at Northern Illinois University, and the lecturer was talking about twins. And the lecturer went on and on about twins' individual development and this and that and the other thing, you know. And she, and it was a, it was a class of a couple hundred people. And she gets to the end of this time of lecturing on twins, and she says, well, she says, you know, sometimes with, with twins, she says, the, the identity of the two of them is so bound up with each other. She said that they begin to think the same thoughts and to say the same things. And so she turns and she says, we actually have a pair of twins in this class. And she said to them, is that how you found it? And at the exact same instant, both of them said, yep. (laughs) It was hilarious. Yep. We do find it true. Well, let's hear the word of God as it's recorded in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we saw that the rubric overarching from this whole section of sort of staccato commands, boop, 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 is that there is to be love and it's not to be insincere, it's not to be hypocritical. And we also saw that the only way we're able to truly love others is because God has loved us. It grieves me terribly to see all the cheap talk about love in our culture. And that cheap talk about love is used to oppress the truth. And this happens constantly. Anytime you hear uh, talk of compassion and love or condemnation of hate, you can almost certainly know that it's, the truth is opposite of what you're being told. Love and compassion are used to cover up terrible wickedness And hate is used to silence love. That's the world we live in. And so when you read the Old Testament prophets and you see them saying that, you know, right is wrong and wrong is right, this is the world you live in. And as I watch you in in your conversations with each other, as I watch the things that you listen to, the things you write, as I watch you on social media, it's very obvious to me how you as sheep are beaten down and can barely allow yourselves to think biblically today. And and I know this is true. I see it very, very clearly 
that we're so oppressed by the lies of our culture that we just go along with, and I notice it especially in headlines. That's why I often, because headlines are meant to appeal to you. They're effective. And you know, you just think about people talking about what Texas did with abortion as if it's this horrendous denial. Voting rights is a similar thing, where, you know, if you create the phrases, you know, you win the battle. And so the phrases are voting rights, you know? And it's like that's the whole ball game. And so when it comes to God, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to purity, when it comes to greed, when it comes to envy, our world is luxuriating in the direct disobedience of the character of God lodged in the Ten Commandments. But we don't think that through. All we think is, you know, I don't want to be one of those censorious Christians. You know, I don't want to be known as a know-it-all. I don't want this. I don't want that. And it's always about us and how we want people to think of us, right? And so the Bible says, let love be without hypocrisy. So we saw last week that the temptation to insincerity and to, to lying and to being hypocritical, to being a role player in our culture is intense. And so we start there. No, no, no. We are able to really love because God really loved us in Christ Jesus. So we are the only ones who are able to love. And that's not a statement of pride. We're not taking pride in the fact that God called us to himself and loved us while we were his enemies. We're acknowledging that that gives us freedom in Christ. We love John 1 John 4.19 because he first loved us. Now, we come to how to love each other, and in verse 9, the first thing we're told is to abhor what is evil. The minute we're told that, we ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to abhor evil, something that is evil? It would naturally uh, occur to us to think about food that we abhor, because generally we reserve such strong language for things that are inconsequential. And so we abhor what? Brussels sprouts, right? I abhor turnips. I don't know what you abhor, but something. But this is not telling us about food groups. This is talking to us about evil. Now, when we're told to abhor evil, we're told to be intensely hateful, intensely condemning. Very, very intense in our emotions. That's what abhorrence is. We can barely bring ourselves to even view it. That's abhorrence. We're to abhor what is evil. So, do we actually abhor what is evil? Now, when I was trying to think of uh, something that we abhor other than food, what immediately occurred to me is a woman in our church who for many years was not able to have children. And so she just miscarried again and again and again. And you felt her pain, you know? You you just felt her pain. And then one day I was talking to her and she got very angry. And you'll be surprised to know she wasn't angry at me, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Thank you for laughing. And Frank laughed. Who was she angry at? 
She abhorred other Christians who tried to keep from having children through birth control. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And she's a godly woman. And I was like, what on earth? I never thought of her as being a negative person. But the negativity done poured out of her there, (laughs) you know? So we can understand how a mother who desperately wants God to open her womb can resent people who choose not to have children. We can also understand how they abhor abortion, right? They desire nothing more than to be fruitful, okay? What about a man? Well, think about a man who has a brother who has died from a drug overdose or is in bondage to drugs of some sort. Do you think it would be understandable if that man abhorred the local pain doctor, as we call them? The drug pusher. Yeah, he abhors everything about the culture that has destroyed his brother. And so these are cases where we can see other people who aren't just uh, interested in, 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 in parading their moral superiority to people, but they're a function of the things they've experienced in life, and they, those painful experiences cause them to abhor certain things, right? And we may not feel that the way they do, but now let's ask ourselves, okay, but do we, do you and I, abhor evil? And the minute I ask myself that question, thinking about preaching on it to you, I thought to myself, no, actually, I don't abhor evil. And then I thought, well, what do I do? And I thought, what I really do is I cuddle up to it. Now, I don't want to be in bed with it. But cuddling is okay with evil. Now, you're sitting there, and you may be thinking, well, okay, in what way do you cuddle up with evil? Well, come on. A good one to use is the issue of truth. Lies are evil, right? Don't you see how you're constantly cuddling up to deception? You know, plausible deniability. You know, you say something knowing that the implication for the person you're talking to is going to be such and such, but you act as if you don't know that that's the implication, and you just let them sit there thinking what they want to think, because after all, you did not say that to them. And that is cuddling up to evil. The old adage, look but don't touch, men with lust... That's the very definition of cuddling up to evil. Get as close as you can to it without actually having a child out of your marriage. Okay? And so listen, we do cuddle up to evil. And if you cuddle up to evil, and and I could keep coming up with illustrations, but I think I've made the point. If you cuddle up to evil, it's the one thing certain is you don't abhor it. You don't hate it. Because generally what you hate, you are irrepressible in demonstrating that. And so if you want to find out what things you hate in life, 
Just look at how you play to other people. Ask other people to tell you, what do I abhor? And they will know in an instant what you abhor. All right? And so all of us make it clear what our preferences are. And the Bible says, abhor what is evil and what? It says, cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. That word cling is the same word that is used in Greek. It's the same word that is used when the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians and says, do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? It's the same Greek word, cling. Or Jesus, when he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. This is a very intense word. We are to abhor what is evil. And we are to be joined to what is good. Okay? Now, again I ask you, do you abhor what is evil? And do you cling to what is good? Okay? Do you think I do? Let me ask you another question. Do you think that the Romans in the church in Rome did? Do you think they abhorred what was evil and clung to what is good? One of the encouraging things about Scripture, if you read it as it speaks to you and listen, is that it's constantly encouraging precisely at the points where it gives you commands. And the reason is, you know if the Bible says to you abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, that's because we don't abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. I mean, right? The Apostle Paul is not writing the Romans, telling them to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good because the Romans are so good at abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. And so the Apostle Paul wants love to be sincere, not hypocritical, and he follows it up with a command to abhor what is evil and to cling to what is good. Now, one other thing about abhorring and clinging. Do not try to convince yourself that deep inside you abhor and cling. Because abhor and cling are so intense, they're irrepressible. They are going to come out of you. And you say, well, yes, but we live in a diverse society and not everybody has the Holy Spirit inside of them. I say, yes, and your point? Well, and if other people don't have the same benefit of being raised in a Christian home and having the instruction I have, I can't expect them to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And I say, yes, your point? And you say, well... And so, I mean, you know, if we're going to live in a diverse society and be able to get along with other people, we can't have the same expectations for other people that we have for ourselves. And I say, yes, your point. You say, well, it just would not be appropriate for me to 
let on to other people that I abhor what is evil because the things that I abhor are the things they love. I say, oh, okay. Now I understand where you were headed with all of that. Listen, you cannot allow living in Sodom and Gomorrah to cause you to grow what? To grow uh, inured to the men about to lay down and sleep in the public square. You bring them in. You hate what the men of Sodom are going to do to them. I mean, did you ever think that there was a cost to Lot doing that? Did you ever think that he was opposing, and it says in the Bible, every single man and boy in that city. It singles them out, every one of them, you know? And you say, yeah, but certainly he was known to be a very, a very intense moralist and legalist, and he was censorious, and he had a bad reputation in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's just not evangelistic to have a bad reputation. <laughs> if, I, if I could write a book, I would write a book on no one knows all the crimes committed by Christians in the name of evangelism. That's been the story of my life. You know? Every one of our sins, we just cloak it with, what are you guys doing here? Hi, Mr. Hillsdale. Welcome. The Stoffs are here and we're happy to have you. I just wish we had a pipe organ you could play for us. They were in our church for many years. We do live in a pluralistic society. We do live in Sodom and Gomorrah. It is true that our world loves the very things we're to hate. And our world hates the very things we're to cling to. This is the world we live in, okay? What is wrong is for you to think that our only option, if we're obedient to this text, is for us to become moralistic and pharisaical and censorious and cynical and sarcastic. There are ways of abhorring what is evil without being condemnatory to the people that you live among. Don't be sarcastic and cynical. There are times to be snarky publicly. And that's when somebody is so filled with themselves that before you can do any work, you have to remove the hot air. And that is appropriate at times. I'm not against that. But some of you never stop being snarky. You're just cynical. You're sarcastic. You're superior. And that is not abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. That is abhorring others and loving yourself for your superior judgments. Don't do it. It is a very easy thing. Now, I say easy a little bit weirdly, but it is a very easy thing to love other people with abhorring evil and clinging to good. As long as you're not cultivating your self-image and your perfect position in human relationships as you do it. As long as you're not fencing yourself off 
from having other people reject you as you do it. I really believe that the sweet spot in ministry, whether it's the ministry of a pastor or a congregation or the ministry of a Christian in the workplace, is to make sure that you're always in a position where you can be hurt by being rejected. Did you all hear me? And the cynic and the sarcastic and the moralist are never in a position where they can be hurt by being rejected. Okay? In connection with clinging to what is good, may I please remind you of that wonderful statement by David in Psalm 119, where he says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so when it comes to abhorring what is evil, the most effective way is to love God and to love his word. If you just simply try to remove evil from yourself, it's not going to work. It just won't work. It won't work. And I'm sorry, but we live in Bloomington, and so I'm just constantly dealing in working with the congregation and with myself and with you on the issues of sexuality. Let me say to you who are tempted that it is not enough for you to resist temptation. What you have to do is love your wife. You have to cling to what is good. What is good? The purity of the marriage bed. It's so sweet. Don't you want to get old like me and still love your wife? I mean, honestly, you ever thought about that? Have me as a goal. I still love my wife. <laughs> you know? Well, that takes work. Right? I wasn't asking you. I was asking her, actually. <laughs> I mean, that was such a beautiful thing as, as, as Charlie died. Oh, my goodness. What a love song. You know, two mockingbirds in the living room. You know, geese. And the same thing is true of Joe and Eleanor. What a beautiful marriage. You talk about a contrarian bunch of people. You know, the Dugdales. You know, and they love each other. And slowly but surely, they resemble each other as they get older. In their tastes, even in their looks. I'm working hard to resemble Mary Lee, trust me. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you do want to abhor impurity, cling to your wife. Cling to your husband. You say, I'm single. I say, you just don't know who she is yet. Cling to her now in your purity. And the good thing is, she already knows who you are. I'm not looking anywhere in particular. Then it says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. 
I mentioned to the children that they don't think of their parents as being rivals with other people in the church. But we always have to keep in mind that the church is the household of faith. The church is the family of God. And the reason the Apostle Paul exhorted us to be devoted to one another in brotherly love is that we do engage in sibling rivalry. I'm going to use an example which I used in the first service. Jared, unfortunately, you're in the second service. But (laughs) I talked about the congregational meeting where we had Adam and Jared going at it with each other. As I remember, it was right here. (laughs) I was the moderator. I remember it. And we had two men with their doctorates arguing with one another about the meaning of some word. I don't remember what it was. Do you remember? And I was, I was so uptight because we, we, didn't, we didn't have like little toddlers fighting. We had titans, you know? And do you know how often the next decades of a church are determined by little things like that? Listen, we are tempted all the time to fight with each other and to resent each other in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not to do it. We are to be devoted to each other in brotherly love. Now, how would I know whether or not you are devoted to your brothers in Christ here? Okay? Well, here's an idea. If you're not devoted to your brothers in Christ, as soon as the service is over, you're out the door and either in the car waiting for the woman who is so weak that she needs to be devoted to her sisters in sisterly love, or you're over at the playground acting as if you're fulfilling a function. But if anybody comes up to talk to you, you resent them interrupting your function. It's very obvious to people here whether you love yourself or you love them. People that love them bear one another's burdens. That's what it means to love. People that love you are asking you how they can help you and trying to carry the weight of your life. Okay? It's not complicated, right, men? And so lower yourself and love somebody else. And you say, oh, I do that all the time. I say, no, you don't. All you do is look for opportunities as quickly as possible with other men here to engage in transactions of monetary value. In other words, you talk business. And that is not love. And you say, oh, but I'm helping them. I say, okay. Would you just once out of every 10 times help them emotionally and spiritually instead of financially? You all with me? Now, what about women? Okay. Well, okay. So women, you know the expression, woman, thy name is jealous. And every time I think about that, I always think about the fact that it makes sense that God would make mother jealous. Because after all, somebody has to pay attention to the children. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so women are jealous, and it's a beautiful trait, except when it comes to being devoted to one another in sisterly love. And then it gets hard because everything becomes competition. And so to you women, just let me say, would you please, because of your willingness and desire to obey this command of scripture, would you please, before you leave here today, find a trait in another woman that you are grateful for? And would you please tell her how grateful you are for that trait? And if you really want to do a work of super arrogation, tell her a trait of one of her children that you really admire and wish your children had. (laughs) But of course, you ain't going to do that. (laughs) Come on, guys, laugh. It's funny. All right. Now, some of you, of course, will come up to a woman that is 30 years older than you are and tell her a trait that you appreciate. That is not allowed. You have to tell a woman who is within five years of your age. Okay, so, so don't just say you love your mama. That's not allowed. Be devoted to one another in what? Brotherly love and in sisterly love. Be devoted to one another. Then it says, verse 10, give preference to one another in honor. Preference indicates uh, uh, putting other people in a more honorable place, uh, preferring being first in in. Okay, now listen. I was trying to think about how to get this across. And what did I think about but the doors, the front doors of this church. How many times have I simply wanted to go in the front doors of our church? But oh no, there is Uriah Heap putting me first. And of course, once he tries to put me first, I have to put him first, and then he has to put me first, and pretty soon, there's a bottleneck at the door because we're giving preference to one another in honor. You first. No, 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 you first. No, 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 no. You first. No, no, no. You first. Please, you first, please. Okay. And then you walk three feet, and you have to do it again. This <laughs> is like, oh, please, can we go through the doors? After however many years of marriage we have, Mary Lee and I have finally arrived at about a 75% rate of Mary Lee lowering herself to allow me to open the door in front of her. Okay, so sometimes preferring someone else is allowing them to open the door for you, right? It seems backwards, but that's actually true. I have yet to have Mary Lee allow me to open the second door. (laughs) Because ultimately, even though she loves me very much and likes me a lot of the time, she is an efficiency machine. And it's like, what a waste of time when he's back there holding that door for me not to open the door for him. 
What we need to do is we need to put others ahead of ourselves. And the most difficult place to do that, again, we mentioned just now, again, it is an acknowledging and honoring what other people have that we don't. Okay? And so look at ways that you can build your brothers and sisters in Christ up. And of course, all through this text is woven the fact that the church is a family and therefore what applies in the church applies at home. You should never allow your children to put each other down. By the way, I actually honored Jonathan and Nathan by what I said earlier. And you say, no, you were singling them out for failure. And I said, no, no, no. If that's the most I have to worry about Jonathan and Nathan having sibling rivalry in their lives, trust me, I've died and gone to heaven. Even in the ways that we criticize people, we are able to honor them. You know, sometimes people will say to me, um, you know, why are you so critical of me? And I'll say to them, well, it's because I respect you. And they'll look at me with a confused look on their face. Because it doesn't feel like respect, you know. And then I say to them, do you know how many people I have been a pastor to who I would never criticize? That's a little trade secret. Even criticizing people can be a way of honoring them. Because criticism implies faith and hope. You don't deal with a fool in his folly. Okay. Earlier in the first service, I was talking about the fact that we had a little boy who, in the, in the children's sermon, his, his father had to, like, forcibly make him sit up front. Well, he cried and cried and cried and cried. And I looked at the little boy, and I said, Stop it! Stop your crying! Cry, baby! Yes, I did talk to the parents afterwards. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then I said to the congregation that Hannah came in our house once and she had a little boy that was just obnoxious. It was like every time I was around him, he was fussing, he was moaning and groaning and crying and bleep, 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 bleep. And so one day I took her aside by the pillar and I said, Hannah, do you know how oppressive this is to you in your life to have him demanding of you all the time that he be put in first place? He never stops. He never stops making demands of you as a mother. Do you realize that he is attacking my daughter's happiness? And I won't have that. And it's not because this is inconvenient to me. You're just here for a couple minutes. It's because I love you. I don't want you oppressed by a little punk. Right? Are you all with me? So then I said to the congregation, you know that I was actually 
preferring and honoring Hannah by telling you that story. Do you see this? Because there's not one person here that doesn't know that Hannah is someone who should not have oppressive children. None of you are going to be tempted to be jealous of Hannah. Everybody here wants Hannah to have her children treat her well, right? We all want it, right? You see, prefer one another in honor. Even in your rebukes, you have the ability of preferring each other in honor. You have the ability of sending your compliments and blessings on other people. Even in rebukes. As a matter of fact, with men, the best way to tell a man that you respect him and care for him is to rebuke him. It's love among men. So, prefer one another in honor. And get acclimated to the fact that the way that you're preferred and the way that you're honored, sometimes you have to think about it a little bit and not just go with your initial emotional response. Okay? (laughs) Okay. All right. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. So I've been to several uh, cross-country meets recently. And, you know, you have people that are fast and you have people that are slow. And then you have people who are still going through the chute when you're home eating cake. I mean, to say they're lagging behind would be a euphemism. They're so far behind that they're in a different time zone. We're not to lag behind in diligence. But I know, since I've run cross country, that that wasn't a fair example. And the reason is anybody, any idiot that runs cross country is not a lagger. Because you have to be diligent to run cross country. Now it is true they might not have practiced as hard and they may have an aversion to puking at the end that the people that come in first don't, you know? In other words, there's a lot of reasons other than being a slothful, lazy dude that you come in long after everybody does in a cross-country race. But when it comes to diligence in the work that we're talking about in the church, there are many who lag behind. Now, the reason the Apostle Paul says don't lag behind in diligence is because, again, he wanted to encourage us. And he's encouraging us by telling us to stop it. (laughs) And that means that it must be common to do it. You get that, right? Okay, now. No. Really? Okay. So you would think that the reason men are elected to be pastors and elders is because they're diligent and don't lag behind, right? Right? I mean, it's reasonable. You don't elect the diligent man to be your shepherd. I mean, you don't elect the slothful man, the lazy dog. So in the first service, Brandon Chastine was here. It takes minutes for us. 
And I made the point that Brandon Chastain has a job every month of starting the meeting by reading the to-do list. And the to-do list is usually somewhere between eight and 12 things with a name attached. It doesn't do any good to have a to-do list unless you have an elder who's responsible for it, right? And he reads that and we go through and say, did you do it? 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 And I want you to know that it has been fairly common for some to-do items to come up monthly for periods well over a year. And it gets hilarious in the elders meeting where everybody just laughs the next time it comes up. It's like, and sometimes, not real often, but sometimes after a year and a half, we think better of it. And we just say, we're not going to do that. (laughs) Not lagging behind in diligence. When your dad, son, When your dad asks you to do something, don't lag behind in diligence. Do it well. And don't think there's a way to go through being a son growing up in a home without having it pointed out to you that you lag behind in your diligence. And an awful lot of your father and mother's life is pointing out to doctors and to body shop owners that they've lagged behind in diligence. And so don't lag behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Now this word fervent is um, fiery, boiling. Okay, so your spirit is supposed to be intense. So when you do the things that the Bible's commanding you to do here, you're not supposed to Cop a posture as being coy, as being cool, as being in control, as being dignified, which is what most of you do in worship. What is obvious to me from the back is that most of you in worship are more concerned about your dignity than your fervor in worshiping God. And you're supposed to be in worship self-forgetful. That again is the meaning of the word ecstasy. Stasis, out of stand. So ecstasy is when you're finally able to stand outside of yourself and give yourself to God. And if I were to stop right now and ask you whether you have ever been in ecstasy, those of you who have, and you know the Apostle Paul referred to this himself, those of you who have have, My guess is it was because there was one time in your life when God allowed you to forget yourself and just see his glory. Jonathan Edwards writes about this, and it's beautiful. And so we are not lagging behind in diligence. We're fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And so that serving the Lord is um, the goal and the... um, the quality control of these other things. Not serving yourself, but serving the Lord. Now I want to say something to you who have adoptive children at this point. Remember that the church is the household of faith. 
Remember that the church, when it says brothers, it's referring to men and women together. Remember it says we're to relate to each other in purity, sons with their... Fathers, mothers, sisters. We're to have the same sort of purity of relationship in the church that we have at home. And we're to have the same sort of purity and diligence and sincere love at home. We're to have brotherly love at home the same as we're to have it at church. Now, one of the problems with adoptive children is that we all of a sudden come to a different position with adoptive children. And we think to ourselves, well, you know, I'm willing to have zeal in calling my son to mimic me in worship, say, if he's my natural born son. Because I've noticed that my natural born children are just more workable, right? I mean, you know, it's like they've got my genes, which of course they don't. And it just is natural, you know, right? Are you all with me? And so when it comes to adoptive children, we're like, well, but, you know, they. And well, but, you know, and, you know, well, but, you know. And we just make all these excuses for children that are adoptive so that we aren't oppressive, so that we recognize they have different genes, right? And we're not condemnatory about their genes. We love them just the way they are, right? But that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. And I have proof that it's wrong. And what is my proof? My proof is that in the family of God, every single one of us is adopted. Every single one of us. There's not a one of us that naturally has brotherly love. There's not a one of us that naturally wants to resemble his father in heaven. It took a work of the Holy Spirit to change that in us. Can you imagine if God made the excuses for us that we make for our adoptive children? Well, (laughs) they're not my only begotten son, I can't expect. (laughs) It's like, okay, where does this stop? Listen, it is the nature of fatherhood to imprint on his sons. The man who does not imprint what he wants from his son is not a father. Did he really say that? Yes, I really said that. Don't you make excuses for your son. Don't make excuses. I don't care if he is your own genetic progeny or as Mike said in court one time, yes, your honor, I sired him. It was one of the funnier times I've ever been with Mike. The judge looks at him like this, you know. (laughs) I done sired him. I don't care whether your son is sired or adopted. I don't care whether you have him in your home because your sister-in-law has asked you to take her in for a while. 
It is the obligation of a father of a household to make that household into conformity to what he believes honors God. And that includes affections. Affections. And you say, oh, come on, how can you command affections? (laughs) And I say, just watch. You tell your son that you expect him. Don't you remember my story about my dad? I'm going up to bed. I'm 16 years old one night, and I decide I'm going to go to bed without telling him I love him and kissing him goodnight. And he's over in his easy chair, and all of a sudden I'm headed up. Tim, my dad never called me. Yeah, dad. You know, I was panting like a dog. Yeah, dad. He wanted something. Come here. So I went over, and he says, he didn't even look at me. He just kept looking at what he was reading. And he said, when your brother Joe died at 19 years of age, he did not think he was too old to kiss me goodnight and tell me that he loved me when he went to bed. Don't you tell me you can't command affection from your children. I've been a pastor long enough to know that an awful lot of sons whose fathers don't demand affection from them yearn for their father to demand affection from them. I don't care how we have sons. We are the father. And we will give an answer to God for the way that we have raised our sons. And those sons are to have a family resemblance, right? And if they don't, they aren't our sons. And we are not their father. Are you with me? Are you with me? Then because these things are difficult, we have a triad, and here it is, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. All of these things we've been talking about are difficult. They're really difficult. I know that. I'm not just being hard-nosed. They're very difficult. They're not just difficult. They're very scary. I know that. And so, we rejoice in hope. It doesn't look like it's going to work but we rejoice. Why? It's the prophetic future in Hebrew. You know, it is anticipating that what we lack in obedience to God, he will fill up. And so we rejoice, not because we see the fruit we want in our sons, but we rejoice because we have hope. When I ran cross country, I would always pace myself with hymns, right? And there was one that I sang more than everything. Well, actually there were two. Okay, one was rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's a really, really deep and theological song. And the other was the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's very deep also. 
But listen, the joy of the Lord is incredible in its motivation when we're weak. And we can sing the joy of the Lord when we're sad. We can sing it. And so rejoice in hope. Persevere in tribulation. Look, if you try to do this stuff in the church, you're going to get knocked on your rear. You know, there are going to be people that receive it about the way they'd receive an attacking skunk. You know, have you ever tried to hug some of the men in this church? You know, persevere in tribulation. No, seriously. Do you think that Mike Bowles allowed me to hug him before he'd been here for 10 years? I don't know that he still does. But it's something approximating a hug. Right, Mike? You know, it'd be really nice when I'm gone because you'll never get singled out anymore. Just turn the hearing aid up while I preach. That's generally what you want to do. He, he couldn't hear me on that one. So. <laughs> so we persevere in tribulation. Now, what tribulations do we have? There are an awful lot of them in the church. You know what Calvin says about this section? He says that we don't want to give ourselves to other people if those people are proud. And he says, nothing destroys brotherly affection more than pride. The minute somebody around us is proud, what do we do? We go into defensive mode. We're not going to be vulnerable with them. And so we persevere and we ask God to fill up. We're devoted to prayer. We ask God to fill up what we're lacking. The fact is all this stuff only comes from prayer. And so we should be praying constantly that God gives us love for each other. Constantly. Constantly. And then finally, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. So it goes through these what you could call spiritual qualities, you know, love, you know, all these sort of not just sort of relational things. But at the very end, it comes back to the concrete. Because when it says contributing to the needs of the saints, it's referring to physical help. It's referring to food. It's referring to money. It's referring to loaning cars. You know, it's referring to physical care. One of the things I love going over is Charlie did his, his hard work at the end was how many flowers there were there on you know, that table in the corner, but, but also the flowers outside. <laughs> you know, And it was like such a visible demonstration of care. I did cut my grass two days ago and on it was a piece of property that you used to own, Susie. And on that piece of property is a tree about this tall that I once ran over with my lawnmower when it belonged to you. You know, and you just think about the fact that when we love people, what do we do? Oh, don't you get tired of words? Do you know what my fantasy is? That when I retire, do you know what I want to do? What I want to do, deep, deep, deep inside of me, is at funerals and weddings, I 
just want to put out food, to clean the kitchen, and to put away the tables. If you ever watch me at funerals and weddings, that's really what I love doing. And think if everybody was busy, and those of you who like being in the kitchen, like Cindy Sparks, if she actually came out and loved up on people and we put the big mouth, Bailey, in the kitchen, think of how relieved you all would be. Well, think about it. You would be. Trust me, there were a bunch of people who would have been relieved if I'd shut up when I got done the sermon last time. We are to be very, very practical giving people money, our money. And as a matter of fact, we are supposed to look at our money as a gift to the church, not as for ourselves. Now listen to me. Some of you think that you shouldn't give money to people who aren't responsible stewards. And I know you're thinking that because Calvin talks about it. Because really, any idiot writing about this text would talk about that. So Edwards talking about this says, hey, you guys, you think you shouldn't help the poor because they're just going to be spendthrift. They're just going to be profitable. They're just going to, they're going to waste the money that you gave them. They aren't good stewards. Okay, so where did you get your gift of being a good steward? Oh, from God, huh? Huh? You have nothing that you haven't been given, huh? Huh? So you have the ability of being a good steward. Is there some reason why another Christian can't benefit from your gift of good stewardship? <laughs> Listen. I tell you, and I've been at this for several weeks now, I have no patience with men who think that they're God's gift to the financial universe. I have no patience, none, none. If you have money, God has given that money to the church. Now, I know some of you are really sneaky and you'll say, well, I don't have any money. (laughs) Hey, I've had rich men play me that way. And they describe to me their investments in their land and this, that, and they go on and on about how they have no liquid assets. And trust me, I've heard this often enough that nobody needs to take it personally. Well, listen. God knows your heart. And if your heart desires to serve him through giving to those who are needy in the church, God knows that. And trust me, he will make a way for you to do it without your wife dying in penury. God does not need your money. God needs your brotherly love. Okay, and then finally, practicing hospitality. I love the word practicing (laughs) because practice makes perfect and hospitality is hard. 
Mary Lee and I used to recommend a little book by Karen Maines many, many times. It's called, uh, it's, it's called Open Heart, Open Home. It's a very good book on hospitality. Um, in the early church, it was imperative that they would actually open their homes to strangers. It's a matter of sweetness to me that certain parts of the country are known for having a large number of certain ethnic groups because Christians in that part of the country, when there was a need in that nation, opened up their homes to that nationality, that ethnic group. And now we have needs with Afghans. And yeah, it's open to abuse. It's never not been. But Christians don't give when they know that their gift can't be abused. What about Jesus? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so we need to practice hospitality. I'm so grateful for those of you who open your homes to small groups. I know it's a pain. Trust me. (laughs) You know? (laughs) I I won't say it. Okay. But I mean, practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. Give yourself to it. Open your homes. And I am not talking about Airbnb. That is not hospitality. That is profiteering. Well, men... I'm happy to have you here today. It's not as good as having Charlie. But you are chips off the block. And we do uh, mourn the passing of your father. I have said to you, Dustin, that I have never had a tenderer man in the doorway of the church thanking me. Nobody like Charlie. And so I've been missing him a lot. And what a worshiper. That man was stirred up and boiling in his worship. If you ever watched him, he would sit at the very back there most of the time. And he was the first one to lift his hands. And when he stood, do you remember how he stood? Like that? He was lifting his hands and standing in praise of God. And so let's not forget Charlie. Let's stir it up and be as abounding in brotherly love. And, and I, yeah, I know, Charlie bit my head off at times, you know, but I didn't know he loved me unless he did it. He had to do it, you know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Charlie. We thank you that he is in the presence of the Lord. And we pray, Father, that all of us might also reach that supreme good because you have given us new life in Jesus. Make us a loving congregation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.